listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. I'd like to to continue the prayer as I try to read this amazing passage. You know, for some reason, I'm the lexicon here of names. All right. Reading from Romans 16, 1 through 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sencreon, Crea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints, and help her in whatever she, she may require from you, for she has been a benefactor of many, and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all of the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, fellow Jews who are in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved of the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my beloved Statius. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristopulus. Greet my relative Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nerissus, and his sister in Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Here ends the morning lessons. <laughs> good, Thank you. Good job, Martha. You nailed it. <laughs> I was going to have you clap for her anyway, so I'm glad, I'm glad you guys beat me to the punch. Um, I've got to say, we don't plan this like... I swear it's not intentional, but it's true. Every time Martha is the lay reader, she gets stuck with one of these passages with all these names. I, uh, next time we have a passage like this, Jim, I'm going to give you a heads up so we don't pick her. But good work, Martha. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. So just a quick reminder before we uh, get started, we have a sermon talk back today. Um, and I just want to point out a little pro tip. Um, that's going to be a lot of fun. I hope some folks stay. But on the back of your announcements page, there is a blank page. So if you want to take notes during the sermon, if you want to write down questions, things that are not quite clear, and bring them to the talk back, that is a really good idea. So I will just leave that with you. <clears throat> 
Now, if you were here last week, you know that our Roman series is coming to a close. Uh, We got two more weeks to go in this series, including today, and we are now in this really strange section at the end of the book where Paul's giving his uh, closing words to the Christians in Rome. Last week, we discussed Paul's travel plans, and today, we've got these personal greetings to various people in Rome, hence all the names, right? I want to reiterate, too, this is a section of Romans that we normally skip over. Like, we normally don't pay a lot of attention, spend a lot of time with these random lists of names, but boy, should we, especially this one. The subtitle for today's sermon is Paul and Women. And those of you who know anything about the Apostle Paul, you might have a sense of where this sermon is going. I remember about a year ago when I was beginning to do some research for this series, Get Ready For It, I shared with some folks here in the church that we'd be diving into Romans in 2020. And I remember distinctly about half the women I told that to let out an audible sigh. And rightfully so, right? I mean, Paul writes some notoriously sexist-sounding stuff. Paul's writings have been used for years to marginalize and sideline women in the church, especially female leaders. And that's why I think some of what we learn about Paul and women from this long, random list of names is so important. Before we get to all that, though, I want to give you a sense, just a little taste here up front of how much we can actually learn from these seemingly random lists of names, what historians and Bible scholars are able to discern by, like, reading behind here and looking at what's in a big list of names. The first observation to make has to do with the cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles. This was the big, the big controversy of the early church. This split between Jewish Christians on one hand and Gentile Christians on the other. Paul has addressed this a lot in the book of Romans. We've talked about it probably a dozen or more times in this series. And he hits it one last time here in these greetings. Paul greets Prisca and Aquila. You might know them as Priscilla and Aquila. Prisca is just short for Aquila. Or sorry, Prisca is short for Priscilla. They're Jewish Christians that we know from the book of Acts. Now they're in Rome, and they have a church that meets in their house, but they're Jewish. He also greets a number of other people uh, who he calls my relatives or my kinsfolk. That's another way of saying that they're Jewish. They belong to Paul's tribe. So he greets a lot of Jewish Christians here, but he also greets a number of Gentiles. We find some good Roman names like Asyncretus, Olympus, Hermes, Phlegon. How'd you like to be named Phlegon? (laughs) This is my friend Phlegon. Any expecting parents in the church looking for baby names? (laughs) Consider Phlegon. It's making a comeback. Sorry. So Paul Paul greets uh, Jews and Gentiles here at the end of the letter, and it seems like they're grouped separately. You've got Priscilla and Aquila who are Jewish, and presumably the Jewish Christians who meet in their house. But then you've got Hermes and Phlegon and all these other Gentile Christians who meet in another house. If you read between the lines here, Paul is calling out this split between Jews and Gentiles in Rome. He's naming it. He names the fact that these people are not worshiping together. 
And rather than like taking a side or like making them feel guilty here at the end, he blesses both of them. Jews and Gentiles receive Paul's blessing equally. That's one thing we see here. Another has to do with class, class divisions. Um, We have a lot of letters preserved from the ancient world. There's a lot of texts from other writers we can go to and kind of compare and contrast with Paul's stuff. And one thing that becomes really clear if you, like, read letters of these famous ancient Roman letter writers like Seneca and Cicero, when they greet people at the end of their letters, they always greet the top dogs, the wealthy, the heads of households. Usually men, almost always men, very rarely do they greet or even mention women, and they never greet slaves. But Paul greets a lot of slaves. He greets those who belong to the family of Aristobulus and those who belong to the family of Narcissus. Notice he doesn't greet Aristobulus and Narcissus, just those who belong to their family. That's slaves. In fact, when we look at these long lists of names, which mean nothing to us, historians can tell that um, a lot of these names, Olympus, Phlegon, some of those guys, are names that were common for slaves back then and for freedmen, people who'd previously been slaves. People who'd probably never been mentioned in a letter like this in their lives. This is a huge faux pas. Like, I'm not quite sure how to convey this to you. This wasn't done back then. In the Roman world where, like, class and status was everything, you didn't greet slaves at the end of a letter, an important letter like this. That would be like sending a letter today to, like, the White House or the governor's mansion where you don't mention the president or the governor, but you close with, send my regards to the wait staff. Like, who would do that? No one would do that, right? But Paul does. At every turn here in these closing words of the letter, he's challenging the established order and upending the status quo. It's super punk rock. He greets Jews and Gentiles as equals. He greets slaves and freedmen while ignoring the people at the top. And he also greets a lot of women. Let's talk about Paul and women. You ready for this? It's going to be fun. All right, Paul wrote about half the books in the New Testament. Thirteen of the 27 books in our New Testament are attributed to Paul. And he has some really cringy things to say about women. Paul writes a lot of stuff that, at least on the surface, seems demeaning and downright chauvinistic. In the book of Ephesians, he tells wives to submit to their husbands Of course, he also tells husbands to submit to their wives, but for some reason, Christians haven't highlighted that part. Not sure why. In 1 Timothy, Paul says that he doesn't allow women to exercise authority over men, which is not a good look. But then, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that women should remain silent in the church, and if they have any questions, they could ask their husbands when they get home. Which is just like, Ah, right? Like, like, come on, Paul, we want to like you. And I feel like I just need to acknowledge, like here at the top, this is an egalitarian church. 
Here at Brockport First Baptist, we believe that women and men are equal. We affirm women in ministry. We have a long history of having women in positions of power, positions of authority. And we believe that no one should be relegated to second-class status in the church because of their gender. And I want to also acknowledge that these passages have done a lot of damage. They've been used to harm women for years. In fact, if that's you, if you're someone who has been, you know, put in your place, so to speak, by some other Christian using Paul's writings as a, as a weapon, then as a man with um, pretty significant authority in the church, I just want to say I'm sorry. Like, I'm really sorry that happened to you. That should not have happened to you. That should not happen to anyone. See, there's a theological divide in the church today between egalitarians, people like us, people who believe that men and women are equal in the eyes of God, and those who affirm patriarchy. Uh, The politically correct term for for those folks is complementarian, um, but let's call it what it is. It's patriarchy. Complementarians are people who want to keep men in a position of power and dominance over women. And as you can probably guess, egalitarians and complementarians differ a bit on how we read Paul. Just a bit. It's a pretty complex debate, actually. There have been dozens and dozens of books written on this topic. But all the disagreements, all the arguments, really boil down to one key question. Do Paul's statements about women in the church apply to all women for all time? Or was he specifically addressing circumstances that were happening in those particular churches? That's the core question in this debate. So when Paul tells the women in Corinth that they should remain silent in the church, was that a command intended for like all women everywhere forever? Or was there something specific happening in Corinth with those women that Paul was speaking to? That's the question. Because remember, when we read these letters of Paul, we're reading someone else's mail. And unfortunately, no one thought to save the letters that these churches wrote to Paul. We only have his letters, often his responses to their letters. So there's a lot we don't know. And if we had more time, we'd go through like every example. There's maybe like a half dozen or so problematic passages in Paul when it comes to women. So like we could go one by one, look at them, dig in, explore the context, explore why he might have written what he wrote. That would take a really long time. And in a future sermon series on some of these books, I'm sure we'll hit that. But we can also just read Romans 16. Because Paul mentions a number of women in these closing words of Romans 16, and a few of them hold significant positions of authority. So the time we have today, we're going to look at three of these women from Romans 16. Junia, Prisca or Priscilla, same, same name, and Phoebe. We're going to look at all three of these women, and we're going to try to infer from their example Whether or not some of that chauvinistic stuff Paul writes elsewhere are like universal decrees forever, or if maybe there were some women in the church at Paul's time 
who held significant authority, who he actually affirmed. That's the plan. Does that sound good? Excellent. Let's get into it, and let's start out with Junia. Romans 16, verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They are prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Unfortunately, we know almost nothing about Andronicus and Junia. This is the only mention we have of them in the Bible. We don't even know exactly how they were related. If this was like a husband and wife duo, if they were brother and sister, maybe they weren't relatives at all. They were just like um, co-workers in ministry. We don't know. What we do know is that they were Jewish. They're relatives of Paul. They served time in prison with Paul. They became Christians before Paul did, and they were prominent among the apostles. Which is to say that of the apostles, these two were prominent ones. Now, when most of us hear the word apostle today, we think of what? The tw- I can't do 12 with my hands. I only have 10 fingers. The 12 apostles, right? Jesus' original disciples, the 12 apostles. But those were not the only apostles. There were a lot of apostles in the early church. Paul was an apostle. Matthias was an apostle. Apostle is just Greek for someone who is sent. Think like an emissary or a representative today. Apostles were leaders in the early church who would be sent to take the gospel to a new region, to plant new churches, basically like a missionary. That's an apostle. Apostles were also the, one of the highest levels of authority in the early church. Think of like a bishop, maybe, today, sort of. <clears throat> and Junia was an apostle. She held one of the highest levels of authority in the early church. Now, show of hands, how many of us have heard of the apostle Junia? None! I thought we might have one or two. No one. No one's heard of Junia. That's by design. There is a reason for that. Somewhere along the line, Junia's gender was changed. Not literally. She was not the first transgender apostle. The Bible is not that progressive. But somewhere along the line, in the history of interpretation, Junia's name gets changed to Junius. We don't really know how this happened. Um, All the early manuscripts say Junia. For the first thousand years of church history, it was understood that this was a woman. But in the late 13th century, late 1200s, we start seeing manuscripts of Romans that change Junia to Junius. The prevailing theory, and again we're guessing, but the theory is that this was a typo. This was way before, obviously, keyboards, and it was way before the printing press. Um, So the way you'd make copies of a book is you would have a bunch of monks, all male, of course, in a room, and like the head monk would sit at the front of the room, kind of like this. And that monk would have the original copy, and then all the other monks would be writing out the words as the head monk read them very slowly and very carefully. That was like the medieval Xerox machine. That's how it was done. That's how you copied books. That's also how all the books of the Bible were preserved and passed on, by the way. 
And these monks were really good at their jobs, like shockingly good. When we look at these manuscripts, we find surprisingly few errors. And that's because the head monk, the guy who'd be like at the front reading the original manuscript, was trained to spot and correct errors on the fly. So like you would see a letter that was missing or a word that was out of place and just on the spot you would correct it so that the new versions would be correct. And for the most part, this worked really well. And so what historians think happened is there were a bunch of monks in the 12th or 13th century copying down Romans, and the head monk got to Romans 16, verse 7, where he saw a woman, Junia, named as an apostle. And he thought, that can't be right. A woman can't be an apostle. And so he changed the name, he fixed it on the fly to Junius. By the way, Junia, super common name in, the, in ancient Rome. There's a lot of Junias we know from history. Junius, not so much. In fact, there is not a single record of a Roman citizen in Paul's time named Junius. That was not a name. There's not a male version of Junia. But of course, if you're a monk living 1,200 years later, you don't know that. So Junia became Junius. But it gets worse. So this error, this typo, was actually spotted pretty early on. People got a sense. Most medieval Bible translations we have don't follow this. They fix it. Even the King James Version from 1611 catches this and changes it back to Junia. But that started to change at about the turn of the 20th century. All of a sudden, from about 1890 to 1950, the new Bible translations that were produced begin to prefer the male name, the incorrect name, Junius, over Junia, which is in all the older manuscripts. Why do you think that is? What was happening in the first half of the 20th century that might have triggered these Bible translators to prefer Junius over Junia? Oh, Anthony, we got, yeah, go for it. The what now? Not that. That's a little too early. We're talking turn of the 20th century, like 1900. The women's suffrage movement was picking up. Women were beginning to fight for the right to vote, to get the right to vote. Women were having a voice in society like they never had before, entering into positions of power and authority that were reserved for men. And so these male Bible translators start opting for Junius instead of Junia because we can't have a woman filling the highest position of authority in the church. I share this with you not to like undermine your faith in the Bible. We're talking about one letter. It's a pretty easy mistake to make and it was caught until like 100 years ago. I don't know what was going on with your grandparents, but like before that, we caught it. But I point this out to demonstrate that this debate about female leadership in the church has been shaped by people with agendas. People who are willing to translate the Bible incorrectly to prove their point. Which is to say that if you're a sexist, if you're someone who believes that women are inherently inferior to men, you are going to find that in the Bible even if you're wrong. 
we have to be aware of our biases when we read the scriptures. It's so important. Because whatever your biases are, you're going to see that reflected in the Bible. If you think women are inferior to men, or that people of color are dangerous, or that LGBTQ people are less than human, you are going to see that affirmed in Scripture one way or another. And there's actually a group of Bible scholars today uh, who are working to correct this. They call themselves the Junia Project, and their website is phenomenal. Write this down, juniaproject.com. This is an incredible website uh, that highlights the work of female Bible scholars. It's got all sorts of resources, books, articles, small group studies dedicated to elevating women in the church and correcting these biased readings of Scripture that we've been plagued with for a century. Juniaproject.com. Check it out. <clears throat> so that's Junia. How are we doing so far? Are we good? Are we still going with this? We have time for two more. It's all right if the sermon runs a little over? Okay. Good. Take your silences. Yes. Let's talk about Prisca, a.k.a. Priscilla. Remember, Priscilla, or Prisca is just a shortened form of Priscilla. Let's talk about her. We're going to look at Romans 16, verse 3. <clears throat> Greet Prisca and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. We happen to know a lot about Priscilla and Aquila. They were Jewish Christians from Rome that Paul meets on his missionary journeys in the book of Acts. Um, now they're, uh, they're in Rome. They have a church in their house. They're mentioned in the Bible about a half dozen times. They're always named as a pair. And Priscilla is almost always named first, which is weird, like really weird. Remember, this is ancient Rome. Status is everything. The, the order in which you list names is important. It means something. You would never name a wife before her husband in print. That wasn't done. It should be Mr. and Mrs. Aquila. Instead, it's Mrs. and Mr. Priscilla which is strange. And one of the prevailing theories out there is that this might have been because Priscilla was the spiritual leader of the two. She was more well-known in the churches. Whatever the relational dynamics might have been in their household, whatever the power dynamics looked like between Priscilla and Aquila, when it came to spiritual matters, she seemed to take the lead. She would have been the more prominent one. That's one of the only reasons she would be named first time after time after time. People knew her. And in case someone wanted to argue that this was some sort of like split gender ministry deal, you know, you find in um, some more conservative Christian circles where you'll have a clergy couple, but like the man does the teaching and handles the ministries of the church while the woman like leads a Bible study for women. That's not what's going on here. <laughs> We have a recorded instance in the Bible of Priscilla and Aquila together correcting a man. Check this out. It's in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verse 24. <clears throat> Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. 
He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila noticed the name order. Priscilla and Aquila heard him, and they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Which is a nice way to end a very diplomatic ending that passage, in case, in case Apollos sees this. So you have this guy named Apollos. He shows up in Ephesus. He starts teaching about Jesus, and he knows his stuff. He knows the Bible quite well, but his background on baptism is a little limited. Whatever he was saying, it was, maybe it was like baptizing babies or something. I'm just kidding. That's, we don't do that, but that's fine. <laughs> he was saying some weird stuff about baptism, And so Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, they take him to their house, and they correct him. They set him straight. Notice, it doesn't say that Aquila corrected him while Priscilla sat quietly and saved her questions for later. It doesn't say that that Aquila corrected Apollos while Priscilla was off leading a women's Bible study of the book of Ruth. No. Priscilla and her husband corrected this guy. That's Priscilla, or Prisca, co-pastor of one of the churches in Rome who Paul greets in Romans 16. That leaves us with one more woman to highlight, Phoebe. And she's in Romans 16, beginning in verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sencrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints and help her in whatever she may require for you, for she has been a benefactor of many and of myself as well. Phoebe is a deacon. That's a big deal, you guys. Like, there are a lot of churches today that don't allow female deacons because it's not biblical, right? Which Hello. <laughs> but there, there are churches today, many Christian circles, that would say, well, Paul writes clearly in 1 Timothy that a deacon should be the husband of one wife, so a deacon has to be male. Ladies and gentlemen, Phoebe, the deacon. Phoebe was a deacon from the church in Sencrea. Here's a map. Sencrea is in modern-day Greece, basically right next to Corinth, which is where uh, Paul is probably writing this letter from. But notice, Sencrea is here, and Rome is up here. So Phoebe's not in Rome. She's in Sencrea. She's with Paul. Like, unlike the other people who are named and mentioned in this chapter, she's not part of the church Paul's writing to. She's a leader of the church Paul is writing from. Now, there's only one reason you would close an ancient letter by asking the recipients to welcome someone from the place in which you're writing, and that's because they're the one delivering the letter. Phoebe is taking this letter to the Romans. And just to give you some background knowledge, so you kind of understand the dynamics here. Ancient Rome was an illiterate culture. Only about 5% of the people, it's estimated, could read at this time. 
which means that most of the, the original recipients of this letter could not read it for themselves. They heard it read out loud by someone else. That's why Paul's letters often read more like speeches or sermons. They're written to be read out loud. If you're ever struggling with Paul, try reading it out loud. It helps sometimes. So when Phoebe shows up with Paul's letter, it would have been read out loud to the church, probably in sections over many nights, maybe even many weeks. It's taken us seven months to get through Romans, and we can read, right? So, so it would have taken a while. And if you think about how difficult it is for us to read a letter like this today, like most of us need a pastor, or at least a good study Bible to help unpack and help us understand the book of Romans, Right? takes time. It's hard work. Imagine you're an uneducated, likely illiterate slave living in Rome in the first century, and you receive this letter by having it read out loud bit by bit over several weeks. You would probably have some questions, right? Like, just like for us, there would be parts, sections that were a little hazy that you needed help with. It would be really nice if you had someone there who knew the context to explain it to you. Some of you see where we're going with this. Paul asks the Christians in Rome to welcome Phoebe, the deacon, because as the person delivering this letter, she's also likely the person who is reading it to them and explaining it, unpacking it for them. See, it was customary back then when someone would deliver a letter, they would usually review it first with the letter writer, which means that Phoebe would have worked with Paul on this letter. They would have read it together probably several times. He would have explained it to her so that she would be ready to explain it to the Christians in Rome, which means that the very first sermon series on the book of Romans was likely preached by a woman. Phoebe, a deacon from the church in Sincrea. So, having reviewed these three examples, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that women should stay quiet in the church, is he speaking for all women everywhere of all time? Witness Phoebe who was commissioned by Paul to speak in the church and present his letter to the Romans. Or when Paul writes in 1 Timothy that he doesn't allow a woman to hold authority over a man, was that instruction forever? Or was it specific to Timothy and whatever was going on in his church? Witness Junia, the apostle, a woman who held one of the highest positions of authority in the church, and Prisca, who corrected Apollos. Whenever people debate the role of women in the church, they often turn to Paul, usually to disqualify women from leadership. But they almost never turn to Romans 16, which is probably the most important chapter in the Bible for women, and that is not overselling it. This is why we affirm female leaders in the church. 
This is why we learn from female pastors, female teachers, female scholars, and mentors. And in the tradition of Phoebe, I want to close this sermon by recommending some helpful resources on the book of Romans. The first is a book called When in Romans by uh, Beverly Gaventa. I might have borrowed the name of this series from her book, maybe. Um, But she's a New Testament scholar at Baylor University, a a Baptist college down in Texas. Um, She's written dozens of books and articles on the New Testament. Paul's writings are her specialty. And this is an excellent introduction to the book of Romans. If you're looking to go deeper, to continue your study, this is a really good place to, to pick up from this series, would be by reading this book. And if you want to go even deeper, if you want more details, a little bit longer book, I would recommend uh, this one, The Story of Romans by Catherine Grebe. Uh, Grebe's an Episcopal priest. She's also a professor of biblical interpretation at Virginia Theological Seminary. This book was my introduction to Romans when I was in seminary, so it's a little old. Come on, not that old, though. Uh, but this is still, this is one of the best introductions uh, to the book of Romans. Very accessible. And then, this is the last one. If you're looking for a commentary on Romans, you don't want like a broad introduction to the book. You want an actual commentary that's going to go verse by verse, break it all down. Look no further than Romans, a theological commentary by Sarah Heener Lancaster. This book is amazing. This has been a huge help to me as I've planned out these teachings in this series. And if you want a commentary on Romans, it's not that long. Um, This book is excellent. You can open up to the passage you're reading in a couple pages, see what she has to say, and it is incredible. Three excellent books by three modern-day Phoebes, which I would highly recommend if you want to go a little bit deeper in the book of Romans. I think we've gotten about all we can out of this section, I think. This was, this was, this was fun for me. Um, so that's it for this half Romans 16. Let's close with some prayer. Let's pray. God, thank you for the book of Romans. God, we've gotten so much out of this book these past seven months together, Lord. And we are especially grateful for its preservation of the witness of Junia, Prisca, and Phoebe. Three incredible leaders of the early church. God, we thank you for being a God who created women and men in your image and who calls Christians of all genders into leadership of your people, Lord. God, help us to be true to our egalitarian convictions. Help us to defend those convictions boldly, to ground them in Scripture. And God, help this church to be a place that fully and truly affirms every single woman and every single person that you lead through our doors. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.